Well, after last week's sermon in Romans 9 through 11, this week's passage may be a welcome change of pace. Hopefully it is a welcome change of pace. Because in Romans 9 through 11, we encountered some challenging theological and biblical concepts. Things like the sovereignty of God, the eternal fate of ethnic Israel, and the big question of whether or not the word of God had failed. But we affirmed that God is sovereign and gracious to sinners. We saw that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jew or Gentile, will be saved. And we learned that God's word has not failed in the past. And that means we have confidence that it will not fail in the future either. So in short, everything we read in Romans 8, two Sundays ago, is true. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so Christians like us have reason to rejoice. Now, of course, that's all good news. In fact, it's so good that Paul ended Romans 11 with a moving expression of worship. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We share the same thoughts at this church. But again, as good as Romans 9 through 11 is, it's a relief to read Romans 12 and 13, And get to some more practical guidance about our everyday Christian lives. Because this week, Paul gives believers like us instructions about what the Christian life ought to look like. He teaches us how to live out our new identity as people justified by Christ. So open your Bibles to Romans 12, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one. And take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that regardless of what's happening in our everyday lives, regardless of what's happened this past week, regardless of what will happen in the week ahead, regardless of what's happening locally, nationally, internationally, the changing world that we live in, you are stable. And you are reliable, and we can trust you. And Father, we show that by coming here every single week, by seeing each other on a regular basis, by singing songs, by reading from your word, by taking basically the same pieces of bread and the same cups of juice that we took last week to remember what your son did for us. Because again, in a world of shifting sands and unpredictability, you are stable, you are strong, You are our rock. And so, Father, we trust in you. And I pray that we would live like we trust in you. As we read in Romans 12 and 13 today, all these instructions about how we can live in a way that honors you. I pray that we would do just that. That filled with your spirit and encouraged by each other, that we would live out the new identity that you've graciously given us in Christ. Help us understand your word today. Help us love it. Treasure it. Help us understand and love you, understand and love your son, understand and love your spirit. And Father, help us understand and love each other as well. 
as fellow believers. We ask this all in Christ's name. We give you all the glory. Amen. Well, Paul's already given us some practical guidance in the book of Romans for how to live as justified people. He's given us a little bit. In chapter 6, for example, he told us that being united to Christ means that we have died to sin. And so we must not go on living in it. And then in chapter 7, he said that we have died to the law, which means we no longer try to earn or keep God's approval by our performance. And then in chapter 8, he reminded believers that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And thus we set our minds on the things of the Spirit not the things of the flesh. But you might be saying, you know, Paul, that stuff is helpful. That stuff gets us started. But is there any way you can give us some more specifics? I mean, we understand now that we are justified by Christ alone. We get it. You've drilled it into our heads. But how should we live in response to that? And that's where we pick up in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." Romans 12, 1 through 2 is the thesis of everything else that we will read today, all of chapter 12 and 13. Because we have been justified by Christ, Paul calls us to give our whole selves to God, to be living sacrifices. No part of us is to be withheld from him. Paul challenges us not to be conformed to this world. Instead, we should embrace our peculiar identity as God's people, in a world full of those who don't know him. And then Paul commands us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, in order that we may learn what the will of God is and pursue it with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And now, thankfully, this isn't all up to us. This isn't produced by our own blood, sweat, tears, and strength of will. Again, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, like Paul said in chapter 8. The Holy Spirit enables us to do the things God calls us to do. Like he's going to say in just a few verses, we have the body of Christ surrounding us, encouraging us in that same direction. It's not all up to us. And everything that we do, we do with joyful gratitude for what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. We don't do it with an anxious, walking-on-eggshells mentality of trying to impress God, trying to stay out of God's doghouse. We do it with joy. We do it with thankfulness. Now, the therefore that happens in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, might be the most important therefore in all of Scripture. Because that word, therefore, tells us that what Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11, everything up to this point, is the basis of what he's going to say in chapters 12 and 13. Romans 1 through 11 tells us that we have been justified. Who's done it? Christ. How did it happen? 
He offered himself as a propitiation for our sins that took away wrath. And Paul tells us when it happened. On that cross, outside of Jerusalem, around roughly 33 A.D. That's what Romans 1 through 11 is mainly about. And then Romans 12 and 13 tell us how we ought to respond to this glorious truth. So all of the commands that Paul gives today in these two chapters are an outpouring from our justification. They are not the source of our justification. And it is incredibly important to understand that order. I cannot stress enough how important it is to understand that order. The indicative, which is what God has already said about us, our justification, it comes before the imperative, the commands that God gives us. Everything Paul tells us to do in these two chapters today spring out of the fact that we have already been justified by Christ. And it's because we've been justified that we obey God. It's because we've been justified that we worship him. It's because we've been justified that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. So what Jesus has done, and not what we do, is the basis of our justification. What Jesus has done, as recorded in Romans 1 through 11, is the basis of our justification. Not all the stuff Paul tells us to do in chapters 12 and 13. Everything we do is a response to what God has done for us. Now, the reason it's so important to stress this order is because if you mix it up, if you reverse it, then you end up tearing down everything Paul has set up in the first 11 chapters of the book. If you fall into the trap of thinking that your performance leads to justification, Rather than remembering that your performance springs from your justification, then you will end up believing the polar opposite of what Paul preached. You will end up in a system of legalistic, works-based righteousness. A justification that is built on my sinful and misguided efforts to gain or keep God's favor, rather than trusting in the perfect, sufficient person and work of Jesus on my behalf. We will end up viewing justification as a wage we have to work for rather than a gift that God graciously gives us. So it is vitally, crucially important that we remember the right order of things. The indicative comes before the imperative. God's declaration about us comes before his commands of us. But again, you may be thinking, can we just get to the simple stuff? Can we just get to the rules? Can we just get to the instructions? Can you give me some specifics, Paul? Yeah, we heard. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, we get it. Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, I understand how that might look too. And don't be transformed, or rather do be transformed by the renewal of your mind by the Holy Spirit. That all sounds good, right? But again, can we please get some guidance on what this ought to look like in practice? When the rubber meets the road, that's where Paul continues. 
Now, you can break Paul's guidance for the Christian life down into three main sections. The first is service in the church. The second is our relationships with others. And the third is our relationship to worldly authorities. So we start with number one, service in the church, chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul begins by saying that service in the church, life in the church, starts with humility. This is made no more clear than what Jesus does in John chapter 13. He served his disciples by humbly washing their feet, rather than sitting back and expecting them to wash his, even though he's the Messiah. A church full of justified people is to be a place of humble and selfless service, not a place of arrogant entitlement. And then Paul says that service in the church happens through the gifts of grace given to us by God. Like a human body with different parts, the body of Christ, the church, is full of different people with different gifts. And that's a good thing. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul goes into even more detail with that body analogy. And he shows how ineffective and unhealthy a body would be if all the different parts refuse to play their respective roles, if all the different parts refuse to work together. In 1 Corinthians 12, he compares it to an eye or an ear. What if all you had was eyes? What if all you had was ears? Your body wouldn't work very well. And neither would the church if we were all the same. Justified people all have different gifts. And that is a good thing. And God has called us together to use them for his glory and to use them for the common good. So that's point number one, how this plays out in the church. Point number two, how do justified people relate to others? Picking up in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then picking up in chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So whose voice is better, mine or that person back there? So my Bible labels Romans 12, 9 through 21 as the marks of a true Christian. And then it labels Romans 13, 8 through 10, as fulfilling the law through love. And yours may be similar. You may have similar headings. But the marks that are listed in chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, you read those marks, hospitality, brotherly affection, patience and tribulation, constant prayer, Those things are hard enough amongst our fellow believers, aren't they? They're hard enough amongst fellow justified people. Because even though we're all justified by Christ, we're not all totally sanctified yet. We're not perfectly holy. We're not sinless. And that means that I'm not always good at doing those things. And you're not always good at doing those things. But that doesn't stop Paul from putting the challenge in front of us. It doesn't stop him from calling us to strive to be Christ-like people. To strive to live our lives in a way that matches up with what God has said about us. But then if you think it's hard to do these things with your fellow believers, look at what Paul says about how we treat our enemies. Justified people are told to bless our persecutors. We're told not to seek revenge, to leave it to God. We're told to serve and care for those who hate us. We're told to overcome evil with good, even when it's incredibly tempting to fight fire with fire. And it might sound unreasonable, but Paul didn't make this up. He took it directly from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And then speaking of Jesus, Paul also echoes Jesus in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. In Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus with some Pharisees and some Sadducees, and they want to see if Jesus can sum up the law in a single commandment. Can you take all 636 rules and distill it in down into one sentence? And this is what Jesus says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul insisted that just because the law couldn't justify us, 
doesn't mean it was bad. It shows that we're sinners. But here Paul says the law is fulfilled when justified people, believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, love others. So we've seen that justified people are called to live differently in our relationships with other people. We've seen that we're called to serve faithfully in the church using the gifts that God has given to us. But then we get to the controversial one, and that's chapter 13, verse 1, how we relate to worldly authorities. Paul says there, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Maybe you do. I'm a pastor. I don't pay any taxes. (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So even though Romans 12 and 13 aren't nearly as complex as Romans 9 through 11, this part can still be a little hairy for interpreters. One man named J.C. O'Neill said of this passage, These seven verses, Romans 13, 1 through 7, have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament. What in the world would make him say that? Or what exactly is Paul saying about how justified people ought to relate to worldly authorities? Is Paul's command here the source of unhappiness and misery? Well, it depends on how you read it. Paul's not talking about blind, unquestioning, naive obedience to anything and everything that those in positions of worldly power demand of us. That's not what Romans 13 is about. Paul tells us to be subject to the governing authorities, but he does not tell us to worship the ground they walk on. There are times when Christians should seriously, thoughtfully, and prayerfully consider resisting, speaking out against governing authorities, or even directly disobeying them if what they demand contradicts our worship of and obedience to God. The famous passage is Acts chapter 5, verse 29. When the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. However, we should also be careful that we're not hypocritical in our decisions about when to be subject and when to resist. Too often, Christians are all about Romans 13 when the leaders that we like are in power, 
And all about Acts 5.29 when someone that we don't like is in power. But Romans 13 is not a club to beat people into submission to obeying whatever authorities tell them to do. And likewise, Acts chapter 5 is not an excuse to completely ignore Romans 13. Are there times when Christians should resist governing authorities? Yes. Hopefully those times are few and far between, but those times are there. But Romans 13 ought to give us great pause before we resist those leaders who, to some degree at least, have been appointed by God. And so if we take Romans 13 seriously, civil disobedience should never be taken lightly. Because one of the best things that justified people can do to honor God is to be good citizens. That includes having the appropriate level of respect and obedience to those in positions of worldly power, even though those people will never be perfect. It includes something as seemingly simple as paying our taxes. It's praying for leaders, local, national, and even international, as Paul instructs in 1 Timothy 2. And like we read in 1 Peter 2, a passage that goes very well with Romans 13, justified people do this not just for the sake of those with power and authority, but we do it for the Lord's sake. Now, of course, there are times when the governing authorities that Paul tells us to submit to clearly fall short in their duties. There are times when corrupt leaders, governments, and institutions do the exact opposite of what God expects of them. There are times when they punish good and reward evil. There are times when they condemn good and celebrate evil. There are times when they are poor stewards of the power that God has given them. And in those moments, Paul's words about governing authorities being established by God can sting to say the least. But we remember, and we even remind the governing authorities themselves, that if they are established by God, as Romans 13 tells us, that means they will answer to God. And that does give us some hope. It gives us some confidence. You know, it might seem strange that after 11 chapters of talking about what Christ has done for us, Eleven chapters of Paul saying that, you know, salvation, faith, the gospel, justification, it's not a checklist of things you have to do to be saved. It's weird that he would then give us a checklist of things that we need to do, isn't it? But again, that's why it's so important to remember the order we talked about earlier. We do not do these things to be justified. We do these things because we are justified. Paul has no problem telling Christians how to live in light of the grace that God has shown to us. And as long as we keep things in the right order, then we shouldn't be uncomfortable with it either. Closing the passage, Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, 
not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. So it's not just what God has done for us in the past that motivates us to live godly lives right now. It's what God still has left to do in the future. One day, the same Christ who justified us on the cross will return in glory. And like Jesus told his disciples, Paul tells us to stay awake until that day comes. We have been called to, set apart for, enabled to walk in newness of life. To live in the light of holiness rather than the darkness of sin. We are justified. And so God commands us to live like it. We live this way out of joyful gratitude for what God did in the past. And we live this way with joyful expectation of what God will do in the future. So Christians do not just sit around looking forward to eternal life someday. We live differently right now. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are not conformed to this world. We are transformed by the renewal of our minds. And this plays out on how we serve in the church. It plays out on how we relate to other people. And it even plays out on how we relate to worldly powers and authorities. In short, the gospel changes just about everything for us. Not just in eternity, but right now. We are justified people. That's the indicative. So God commands us to live like it. That's the imperative. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, because Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God for our sins. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the book of Romans, the repeated reminders we've had over the past couple months of how we are justified, who justified us, and when we were justified. But Father, also thank you for the instruction. Again, it's so important that we understand who we are in Christ. It is incredibly important that we understand what Christ has done for us. But it's also important that we understand how to live in response to it, that we understand what we do now and how we ought to conduct ourselves. And so, Father, thank you for Romans 12 and 13, this guidance, these instructions about how to live within this new identity that you've graciously given to us. And even though this list of commands is intimidating and challenging, and I'm sure we all fall short regularly, of the different things that were listed. I pray that by the power of your spirit, with the guidance of your word, and with each other's encouragement, that we as brothers and sisters, we as a body of Christ, we as a church, would slowly but surely begin to live the way Paul tells us to. That we would slowly but surely be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, And, Father, that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices for the good of those around us and for your glory. 
Again, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the sacrifice that saved us, the sacrifice of your son on the cross. And we ask this all in his name.